0: Australia. gold to the world record. Now it's Donovan Bailey trying to pick up runners. Donovan Bailey is putting on the third. He's got it. 9-8-4. A world record for Donovan Bailey and a gold
1: medal. A perfect
0: score. 10.0 for Dodge Combination. A perfect score. The first time I've ever seen in over 100 years, nobody's won as many medals at the Olympic Games in any sport than this great champion,
1: Michael Phelps. Usain Bolt, sprinting ahead, winning by Daylight, and setting a world record, 9.68, the wind is okay, how easy was that?
0: It is Off The Podium, Man Olympics podcast coming to you once again today for an exciting interview, a special interview coming your way today as we speak to American author Michael Now, he's the author of a brand new book, it's called The Waterman, The Birth of American Swimming and One Young Man's Fight to Capture Olympic Gold. Now, this is a book about an American swimmer by the name of Charles Daniels, a swimmer that I'm sure many of you have never heard of. He was America's first ever Olympic swimming gold medal champion back at the 1904 St. Louis Olympics. Went on to win a total of seven Olympic medals and a fact that he actually held the record for most Olympic medals won by an American swimmer until the great Mark Spitz, of course, went on to uh, dominate Munich in 1972. And this is a fascinating story about Charles, basically. His background from adversity going all the way through to becoming an American champion. And also going into detail in this book, Michael, goes into so much paints a great picture, I should say, of of the sport of swimming, where it was basically back in the late 1800s and early 1900s. But this was a sport that really was not taken seriously. No one really gave two shits about swimming back then. It was sort of a, a a minor sport, the redheaded stepchild of sports. No one really cared for swimming. And it's it's incredible to think that where we are today in recording this about how swimming is really pretty much, uh, you know, top billing at any Summer Olympics. Back then, it basically wasn't even cared about. It was barely even reported about. And through all of that, all the different rules of swimming, things about lengths of pools, different strokes, everything. It was a completely different beast back then. And uh, we chat to Michael about how he came about writing this book, uh, all the different things that swimming have uh, obviously developed over the years and how important Charles Daniels was until not only the development of the US of becoming a powerhouse in Olympic swimming but also changing the sport of swimming itself to what it is today so a fascinating interview here with a fascinating story and a fascinating book so here is our chat with American author Michael Lloyd So excited to welcome our next guest here to Off the Podium, an author who is also chairman of the St. Louis Olympic Committee, a representative on the International Olympic Committee's World Union of Olympic Cities, a member of the International Society of Olympic Historians, and a sports attorney and lecturer who has just released a brand new book. The book is called The Waterman The Birth of American Swimming and One Young Man's Fight to Capture Olympic Gold. Now, this is a fascinating story about the first ever american olympic swimming gold medalist a swimmer that maybe not even many americans have heard of the story that he went from being a young boy growing up to basically becoming this massive champion in the u.s and also really putting the sport of swimming on the map in america which sounds weird to think that that only happened barely 100 years ago when as an australian all we think of is bloody america winning gold medals and this apparently has been a (laughs) pretty new thing for (laughs) the country of america when it comes to dominating the sport of swimming but here to chat about this the book and everything else in between it's a pleasure to welcome to off the podium michael lloyd michael first of all welcome to the show it's a
1: pleasure to have you here today uh it's a pleasure to be here ben thanks for having me
0: It's so exciting to be able to chat about this because, as I said, a lot of Americans, I feel, don't even know the story uh, of of this swimmer. And uh, I would like you to introduce us to who this book is about. Uh, Tell us a little bit about him and uh, how you came about this project to write this fascinating book about the story of this uh, great athlete.
1: Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it's just been a really fun ride as far as, uh, just under, you know, unearthing all this information about someone who I had no clue existed. Uh, you know, like you said earlier, it, it, the the fact that the United States was awful in swimming at any point seems so strange because our lifetime, that's all we've ever known. is pretty much Australia and the United States being, <laughs> being the top, uh, being the top swim teams. And, uh, and the fact that there was a time, like you said, 100 years ago, uh, barely, where we didn't even have swimming pools here in the United States, uh, you know, barely any, and only about 600 competitive swimmers. And we were just awful. And here this guy comes along, and I unearthed him because we were doing some research for the 1904 St. Louis Olympics, which was America's first Olympics. It was the third Olympiad. Um, it was actually where they started the gold medal, uh, came from St. Louis and we were just looking at a few Olympians who competed there, uh, just to get some historic background. And I unearthed this guy who won five swimming medals there and one being the first gold, I thought, well, that's, that's pretty interesting. So I, I did a little more of a deep dive in on him and again, Charles Daniels, he was 19 at the time and learned about that. He also really started the U S swim team itself. That he invented the freestyle stroke, which just blew my mind. That that was actually invented, you know, just a little more than a hundred years ago. And then you're like, well, how how did he just invent that? What is the real history of swimming? And then you do, uh, I did a deeper dive into learning about uh, how Britain started it um, and how America was way behind. And just Charles Daniels really started the whole culture of. United States swimming without him. Uh, we probably wouldn't have jumped to the level we did um, at, at that stage of the game, for sure. So uh, just an incredible story. And I as um, and found out his family background uh, and where he came from, his dad being kind of the Bernie Madoff of the day and then being thrown out of society. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is an amazing story. And he used this obscure sport that nobody was paying attention to because it was really the only place that he could be accepted. It was just a bunch of misfits to kind of build back his name and, and you know, take back uh, some form of redemption in his life. And uh, it was it's just, just an incredible story. And I love underdog stories. And, you know, I'll, I'll cry at the end of every good underdog movie, <laughs> Hoosiers, Rudy, Miracle, you name it. And I could watch it 50 times and I'll still still get the same reaction. My kids always laugh at me. But I, I just love them. I find them so inspirational. And this, this was nothing short of that. And uh, I loved every minute of the research.
0: It must be one of those projects that once you start pulling at the thread and you, as you're saying, they're uncovering so many different angles of it. That it just it keeps fascinating you i mean you your first book you wrote uh all things irish came out in 2012 so 10 years ago and this is now your, your second book i mean did it take 10 years to get to this point where it's <laughs> been released i mean kind of is that sort of been the the amount of passion and dedication you put into this i mean how long did this project take to get from the beginning to where you are now releasing this book
1: you know so really the the research and the writing took about two years which is pretty quick you know i I'm of that person. I, I like books that are under 400 pages. I like something that's going to have substance that's meaningful. That's going to be really entertaining. And uh, you know, I was just waiting for that right story to hit me. I mean, I didn't want to waste anybody else's time with something I just felt like writing, but I felt this story just really needed to be told. And I, I woke up every morning, just so excited to research more and to tell this person's story. I, You know, was able to track down his two granddaughters that were still living. And that was a lot of fun because they're both, one's in their late 70s, one's in their early 80s. And I I reached out to them and I could tell they were a little hesitant at first, you know, kind of wondering if I was for real and if I was really, truly interested in this story. And they said, well, if you want to hear more, come up and visit. And one lived in Wisconsin, one lived in Carmel, California. So I'm like, okay, I'll visit both of you. And I went to the first one in Wisconsin because that's that was the closest to me. And I talked to her for a little bit. She was just charming. And uh, she said, well, w- wait a second. Stay here. I want to show you something. And she brought out these two wonderfully old bound uh, books that had all his, that, all his scrapbooks that his mother wow. had put together for him. And I my eyes got probably just got so big. And she's like, well, you can go through these. I said, how much time do I have? She said, how much <laughs> do you need? So I, you know, pulled out, it's wonderful. in the age we're at with the cell phone, I just, you know, took pictures of every single one. And the other daughter had a couple scrapbooks as well. And uh, they were a wonderful resource into finding out more about him as a person. And um, the other interesting One of the other great things that I uncovered was uh, their divorce, Daniel's divorce file, Charles's parents. I suspected certain things, but this file was sealed by the state of New York for a hundred years. So no one would have been able to even get to it till about 12 years ago. And that revealed a lot of his story behind the scenes of what he went through as a child and everything like that. So that was another big nugget. You get these aha moments yeah. in your treasure hunting for information and that was definitely one of the king tut's tombs <laughs> moments kind of thing so it was great i can imagine we, i mean
0: like i loved reading sort of throughout the book how you'd always mention about charlie's dad uh mom was constantly po- posting uh, pasting like things in these scrapbooks and one of my thoughts i kept thinking like like do these exist like i mean you know i'm sure they've been kept and obviously as you said you you got to see them which I mean, I'm a bit of a scrapbooker when it comes to keeping sort of things. I've got, you know, books filled with Olympic newspapers and all these kind of things from my childhood. So to see kind of that sort of stuff from, you know, well over a hundred years ago as an Olympic fan, not even just somebody who's doing research on, on one sort of, you know, great athlete. I mean, that must've been interesting for you to, to see the, the newspapers back from, you know, the early 1900s and the Olympics, how they were reported back in the day.
1: Yeah. And they, and they were really well preserved. And, you, you know, again, even if I got all the articles that were in them, you know the one thing that's that was so revealing. You got to actually go to it; just shows you like when you're researching, you have to actually go to the place, and you actually have to go physically touch things, because there's little hidden things that reveal a lot. And you know, one thing about the scrapbook that I noticed was just the love and care that his mom put into putting the scrapbook together. You know, it was very artistic. It was it was very. Colorful. She cut out all kinds of little images to paste and, you know, look like there was so much love put into this thing. And one of the most insightful things, and this gets to his relationship with his father, there was only one article in there uh, about his father. And it was the mm. only article was later on in his career where his father was actually bragging about his son. And that's the only thing in the scrapbook that ever mentions his father. And I, I just thought that was very telling uh, about the relationship and about, you know, what he was constantly hoping for so know, think, in his relationship with his
0: father. So many things that you go into detail about, and we'll talk about the swimming aspect and sort of, you know, how far that sports come in such a short amount of time, but just the picture of society back sort of in that period in the late 1800s, early 1900s, where it, You know, it was such a class system. You you know, everything was about status and and living that society and then sort of the picture you painted sort of with Alice's mother about, you know, what something like a divorce would do to a a woman back in that point and and just things that just seem so ridiculous by modern standards today. (laughs) I mean, was that something that obviously was important to paint that picture as you're saying that, you know, growing up, the relationship he had with his father, how that obviously was important because he kind of was the one who threw him in a pool, literally uh, to sort of right. help him take up the sport to ultimately he had to push through things like anxiety and things like that to help him become the champion that he ultimately did.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, you know, again, that time of the world and that time of the United States isn't as written about as like the depression or world war two or something like that, but in that decade was really the time when America became what we know it was in the 20th century. And so much happened then, and in addition to just society and kind of peeling itself away from the British identity and everything like that. Um, But the Victorian society was still very prevalent. The class system, like you said, was still very prevalent. I mean, women and children had the least rights in society. Horses had more rights than children, to be honest. It was kind of frightening, but they were deemed more valuable in a way and children more expendable, which is just weird to think about. But, you know, that was only at the turn of the century. Um, and, you know, women, especially unless less of society, unless you were had a husband, you had really no entry into society. You had, you had to rely on him for your to make a living for you and, and everything like that. So um, they're really oppressed. So when you think about when his father walked out of them and just left them to dry and never really communicated with them again, they were very much alone on their own with really no means to survive. And, and yet they did. And, uh, you know, big tribute with that was to his mom and with his anxiety, you know, she was the one who really kind of looked like help him try to pull himself out of that. Um, getting him involved in scouting and just taking him out to the wilderness where he could swim and, you know, kind of break out of the city. Uh, So that, you know, yeah, so it was, all that was just so emotional. The the only thing I wanted to find, and I'm sure she kept a diary at some point, the the mother, but I could never find it. I called historical societies and everything like that, just trying to unearth it. Um, Because I would have liked to have brought her story out a little more, but I I think we've did her justice in this book. Oh, yeah.
0: There's definitely mm-hmm. an image, like, and it's just, and it's all those layers, even little things you talk about, sort of the anxiety side of things, how you go into detail about how mental health was treated back then. About basically, like, if a man had mental health issues, go out into the wilderness, ride a horse, you'll be right, mate. And then if a woman had mental, health, just be, be in bed for a couple of weeks, you'll be fine. You'll just get over right. it. Um, right. like, and that's just, it's such a, an enlightening aspect to think about how we've developed as a society that, you know, that's how people looked at mental illness back in the day.
1: Yeah, it was it was crazy. It just and again it just reinforced the stereotypes of women in the house and men, yeah, you know, out outside working, you know, for the family and uh, yeah. And we look back now, it just seems absurd, but uh, you know, that's what it was and that's what he had to deal with. Uh, you know, which just makes his story all the more compelling and what he was able to do and. And the other thing I, I loved about him was in, in talking to his granddaughters and just, you know, looking at the, all the history, all the articles behind him, he was a very humble guy and, and just, just very shy and soft-spoken and, and put all his words in his actions. You know, he didn't really talk it up much. He just let his actions speak for themselves. And his granddaughters told me, he said, he never really talked about his, the Olympics. He never talked about how all the stuff he did, they never really knew that he even invented the freestyle stroke, even though he taught them how to swim. Um, and I, I just think that's a big credit to him.
0: Which again, the f- fascinating aspect just in regards to the sport itself, let alone again, America's position in the sport, which we'll get to, but even things that people really didn't know how to swim. Swimming was looked down as a, as a fringe sport, a minor sport. And that's something that you don't really do and it's and it's crazy to think about the the lack of pools that you had and and that you know you wouldn't even have people just going for a casual swim at the beach and things like that which today we just take for granted i mean it it does seem for such a, a hugely popular sport today i mean outside of athletics at the olympics arguably the the key sport that everybody looks forward to at a summer olympics but back then i mean i look athens in 1896 four swimming events that was it um and then barely from what you're writing there that Team USA barely wanted to send swimmers to the Olympics back then because England right. was so good. Uh, it was embarrassment. <laughs> we didn't want to, you know, kind of waste those opportunities. I mean, it's just it's fascinating to think that swimming hasn't always held that place that many people probably thought it did for for so long.
1: Yeah, no, I I, I agree. I mean, you look at now. I mean, that's got to be one of the most watched sports in the Summer Olympics for for sure. And uh, you know, back then it was such a. Uh, You know, unwanted stepchild kind of thing, you know, very Cinderella-esque, which is, again, boggles the mind. But again, in the United States, just people just didn't swim because, as you said, it was kind of looked at as for poor people, for urchins, they would be bathing in the urban waterways and stuff like that to clean themselves because they didn't have baths or showers in these tenement homes that were just awful. And, uh, you know, unless you were part of a elite male athletic club, which there weren't too many back then, you know, maybe, maybe a dozen, uh, you really didn't have access to a swimming pool. You know, that was year round, you know, other than going in the lakes and the oceans and whatnot. So, so it's, you know, it just wasn't that conducive. And then women, again, getting back to that component, you know, they had to wear full gowns when they swam. That was expected of them which is more conducive to drowning than it is swimming. And it wasn't until an Australian Annette Kellerman started really pushing the mold and saying, I'm going to wear a men's swimsuit to swim because you can't swim in that stuff. And she was so charming that people just ate it up and it became more acceptable for women to wear that. And that actually pushed the boundaries for women in other areas too, in their, in the dress they wore, out you know skirts became more acceptable after that and it allowed women to get into athletics on a on a major level because before then they couldn't do anything where they would be seen sweating and they had to wear a gown and and that kind of broke the door down for them to really engage in uh anaerobic sports so um so it's it's pretty pretty remarkable what uh what swimming has this this place it's played in society
0: yeah, I mean, I remember 10 or so years ago when they were complaining about the super suits, about how these were too <laughs> fast now. We can't. These are ridiculous. And back then, you know, you had to wear, a, what, a dress in the water. that That's absolutely crazy. But even just little things you're swimming about how, you know, back – In those days, it was very much open water versus sort of indoor pools. And then just the lengths of swimming pools. You literally had 100-metre swimming pools. And then there wasn't a standard length of Olympic-sized pools like we have today. And then little things that we take for granted, like a black line at the bottom of the pool so you can swim in a straight line, (laughs) lane ropes, you know, even the way that you would start a race, how the British would say go and the Americans would use a gun. And then that was so contentious. Like, it's just, it's so interesting to think how again, far we've come and how much Charles had to overcome because Let's let's say this right now. Britain were good at swimming a hundred odd years ago, um, so, and they wanted to keep it that way, basically. So they kind of did whatever it took, really, to make sure that their records always stood. And these plucky Americans were doing everything wrong that clearly weren't up to British standards, right? <laughs> no,
1: that's that, that's right. Yeah, that, that was that was another uh, fun thing about the research because I I didn't realize. You know, it was that contentious between us and the, mm. and the British, uh, and it was politically and everything. You know, you, we always yes. think of the special relationship that we have with England and and everything like that, but that didn't really start obviously to World War One and really World War Two. But before then, you know, they burned down the White House not, mm. <laughs> not too not that long ago. Before then, and uh, you know, we there was the little Revolutionary War we had against them, and. You know, we were really kind of buttonheads heads for quite a while, and this was kind of the climax of that. And instead of on the you know, battlefield, it was done on the sporting field, which uh, England excelled at, and uh, they were the cradle of sports uh, back then. Most of the sports we play today kind of originated out of England. And uh, so, the, yeah, they didn't want to see America or the uh, Australians or anybody take over their, their mantle. So it's kind of an interesting time.
0: You mentioned a couple of times about the stroke and sort of what um, Charles did for that. And you really painted a beautiful picture of how many different strokes there were back then and how people swam so differently, you know, from picking up a crawl to, to the Trudgeon and things, just everything along those lines. that again, we take for granted today. You've got freestyle, butterfly, breaststroke and backstroke, whereas back then yeah. it seemed like you could jump in a freestyle race and basically swim whatever the hell you want as long as it got you <laughs> there fastest. I mean... How was that in terms of uncovering the the different styles? Because obviously there's not, I'm sure, video footage to kind of really analyse that. Was that just a case of reading a lot of articles, speaking to people, swimming historians and things like that to really uncover how people swam so differently back then and how times eventually grew, shortened I should say, by doing these different strokes It got faster and faster?
1: Yeah, that was, that was probably the most painstaking research I did just because I wanted to get it right. And there were so many conflicting stories out there of how things started or where they were at that time. So I had to cross-reference. And uh, luckily, the International Swimming Hall of Fame was a goldmine for research. Not necessarily for Charles Daniels, but for the people around him and that time. And because of COVID, I could not get into their library and i tried and tried and tried and i knew that was such an important piece to this because again i knew there were some unpublished manuscripts by some swimmers around that time that would really shed some light on a lot of the developments of the strokes and stuff like that and it was literally probably a month before i had to turn in the final draft to random house that i got a call from bruce weigo uh down in fort lauderdale who used to be the president of the international hall of swimming Hall of Fame. And he said, Hey, I hear you've been trying to get a hold of me. And I said, yeah. And he said, I, I, I said, I understand you guys have been closed all through COVID. He goes, well, I'm going to be there next week if you want to come and I'll open up the archives for you. And I said, I'll be there Monday. Wow. <laughs> so I spent a couple of days down there and, uh, and Bruce was a wonderful, uh, wonderful guide through all this. And he's like, Oh, Oh wait, you got to see this one manuscript over here, you know? you know, a couple things that were kind of off my radar that he was just terrific at. So, so that, that helped a lot. And like you said, there were a lot of um, other historians had done a lot of research on the origins of the strokes that I kind of looked at and compared notes and and everything like that. In particular, the one thing I wanted to get right was the Australian crawl and how that developed between the Caval brothers and Alec Wickham and, and the Pacific Islanders and everything like that. So, again, there were several different conflicting stories. So I just tried to uh, find the one that I thought was the the one that was truth most truthful to that. It
0: would so. almost be fascinating to see if you could – get and maybe this exists sort of uh you know get a bunch of swimmers and get them to try and swim the older styles that kind of like people (laughs) used to swim back in the day to kind of just show it like because you know so many people obviously talk about today it's about you know the suits and things like that whereas you know something as simple as changing a kicking style or to amount of times or the way you use the arms which is just um it's incredible thing and again to think that Charles basically, yeah, as you say, almost pretty much invented freestyle, which yeah. uh, essentially is the one that we all, I guess, watch mostly, no disrespect to the other three strokes. But, I mean, I guess as an Australian, as a kid, what's the first thing I'm told is to swim? It's freestyle. So, like, it's kind of – it's it's the standardised stroke really now, isn't it?
1: <laughs> it is. It is. It, it, and as you mentioned earlier, there were no black lines. There were no goggles. The water was usually like some kind of shade of brown because it didn't have chlorine back then. So if you wanted to filter it out, you had to drain it and fill it back up, which you couldn't do every day. Um, and, you know, to put your head down in the water, it was hard to swim a straight line, hmm. um, you know, especially as you did at the 1908 Olympics at a hundred meter pool. Yeah. Um, So I, I I mean, and one great thing uh, about this, but I I get to interview a lot of like just great Olympian swimmers like Matt Biondi and, and Rowdy Gaines and John neighbor and Mark, Mark Spitz. And, uh, and they were so helpful. Mark reminded me, "Hey, you know, I didn't swim with goggles either, man. <laughs> 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 you know, and, and that was seventy-two. You know, yeah. uh, sixty-eight and seventy-two. So I'm like, wow, that's that's right.
0: <laughs> you that know? Phelps, he wins all those gold medals because he's right, bloody exactly. goggles. You like, know, come he, on, he it so easy. <laughs> Kids these days don't know what it takes. But, but it's like, actually, you bring up spits, and that was fascinating to think that." Charles held the record for most Olympic medals by a U.S. swimmer mm-hmm. until Mark Spitz, which, I, right. I mean, that's insane to think that that was, what, basically 60-odd, 70 years that that yeah. record stood. I mean, he won seven Olympic medals across two Olympics, two and a half, I guess, if you add an extra one there for the, uh, the intercalated uh, Games in it, it 1996. The eight
1: if you counted the Athens, right? Yeah, yeah
0: exactly. But, I mean, that, that's, an, that's extraordinary to think that that record stood for so long.
1: It, it, it is. It, it is. You know, but he, was, he was one of those really, the other fascinating thing about him, he was a really versatile swimmer. I mean, he could swim 100 meters and then also break the mile record, which, yeah. you know, there are not too many swimmers that could do it. Katie Ledecky, you know, she, she, she's exceptional in that, in that way, which is you think about the different things your body has to do for 100 meters versus a mile. Um, and it's astounding that they could even stay at that kind of level uh, to compete in the, in those races and switch gears so much. Uh, yeah. one thing that was so fascinating to me is talking to the hundred meter guys, you know, they're all like, Hey, at some point that piano drops on your back cause you're just going balls to the wall and you are not, you know, breathing like you need to. And you are just swimming as hard and as fast as you can. And, and as Rowdy described it, you know, somewhere between 20 meters on the wall, that, piano was going to hit and your arms were just going to feel like a hundred pounds. And, you know, you just had to fight your way through it. Um, Mar- and beyond, he said the same thing. Spitz was the only one who's like, you know, it hit me, but it always hit me on my last stroke at the wall. So, <laughs> it, but to Mark's credit, he was also a long distance swimmer before he was a sprinter. So I, there's probably something to that. It's,
0: it's interesting. We've had several swimmers on the show and, and generally, yeah, it borders down to whether they are a long distance or sort of the shorter distance and kind of, it, yeah, it's very rare that they meet in the middle now. You, you know, you're not seeing, um, you know, Carl Chalmers' 100-metre champion going to do the 1,500 metres and back in the day you weren't seeing Kieran Perkins and Grant Hackett going in to do the 50. I mean, Thorpe tried to do it all, but Thorpe's an enigma. Um, right, but, yeah, y- right. you know, he, he was like, hey, I'll do the 1,500, yeah, I'll do the 50. Why not? And it's like you know he was going to do well in it. Um, but, I mean, you, you get those sort of once-in-a-generation swimmers that they can do that. I, I was really fascinated sort of too through – the way you described the Olympics and the Olympic movement, Sort of back in the day, and kind of you know how Charles was able to read a slight little piece in the newspaper about Athens in 1896. It kind of set that fire, but then just even sort of how the Olympics were back then. Sort of how you know the the kerfuffle of 1900 and kind of were they an Olympics? Weren't they? Everything along those lines in 1904 and kind of how it wasn't really till London in 1908 where it was almost treated like how we have it today. I mean, you, you painted such a great picture of that. I mean, is that something that obviously? With the positions I mentioned at the beginning of the interview that you're, you know, chairman of the St. Louis Olympic Committee, things like that, you've done a lot of research on that. But was that something that you felt important that would come across with Charles' story to kind of really paint the picture to the readers that the Olympics weren't what they were today, you know, 120 or so years ago?
1: Yeah, I, I think well, two, two levels it was important. Number one, because, you know, in 1904, he won five medals. And today, if you won five medals, you'd be exonerated. I'd be like, hey, hey, greatest person in the world. And it wasn't that. People were like, oh, that's kind of interesting that some guy (laughs) won five medals. And, you know, like like I said, it it got covered in the newspaper around the country because of that. But a lot of kids in these small towns probably never even knew there was competitive swimming was a sport. Um, So it kind of put that on the radar. So to see the genesis of the Olympics, and it also explained why the our Olympic committee that was just kind of being put together didn't even, wasn't interested in supporting swimming. Um, so I, I thought all that was really critical to the story, even though it was kind of a, a B storyline to it. I, I just thought it was important for his genesis and and to show what he accomplished, not only for himself, but for U.S. swimming.
0: Particularly winning five Olympic medals on home soil as well like I mean he won right. that in St. Louis he won that in America I can't imagine that in LA in 2028 if some swimmer wins five Olympic medals as you said they're not going to be like revered as this as this champion and somebody who's going to you know be on Wheaties boxes and all the kids are going to know their name the next right. day it's, it's, a, it's insane to think that you know you can win five Olympic medals in your home country at your country's first ever Olympics and it really sort of the way you told the story. It didn't really seem like he was fully respected until he won that hundred meters in London four years
1: later. That's and it's true because again, so the nineteen oh four Olympics was the first time the United States really was even in tune to him. Um, in in the past, it got mentioned in newspapers, but not big mentioned, and people really thought it was kind of international sport it was a little odd, um, just because you couldn't go see it. What was the point, right? Athletes couldn't pay their way to go. Overseas, nobody was going to sponsor them to do that. It just didn't make a lot of sense. So, so that the 1904 Olympics, again, it was at the world's fair in St. Louis where everybody came. The world's fair was the big deal back then. The Olympics was very much a small little sideshow. And it just kind of introduced people to this whole Olympic movement. And once we saw, Oh wait, we're good in this. We we're we're competitive as Olympians. We kind of like this. Then Athens in 1906 became more of a big deal. And when Daniels beat some of the top international athletes in Athens, then swimming became a much bigger deal. And by 1908, everybody was on board because we wanted to beat the British (laughs) (laughs) and the British wanted to beat us. And it just got really played up in the papers is that, and you know, at that point it became more of an international sensation. And, That's why I really wanted to highlight those 1908 Olympics. And, and, you know, England did a fantastic job for that. They built a huge stadium. Um, They really embraced it full on. When they didn't embrace the Olympic movement until then, um, they really wanted no part of it.
0: Which, I mean, I'm a big fan of what ifs. A lot of people are too. I mean, he didn't obviously go on the extra four years basically to um, Stockholm, but is it one of those ones that you feel – he could have gone on and added more to that legacy? Cause I mean, it sort of seemed that he was still doing pretty good uh, in the months leading up to yeah. it before he sort of said like, nah, I'm not going to go. I, I'm going to focus on my pr- professional career. But I mean, as somebody who did so much research on that, do you think we could have been talking, you know, a few more medals to Charles names had he, had he gone to
1: 1912? hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, he could have, he could have done the relay um, and that might've helped them get a gold medal. Honestly. Um He could have, he could have done the 100 meters. Now, whether he would have beaten Duke Kanamoko and, uh, you know, Cecil Healy was an excellent athlete uh, for Australia back then. And, and uh, you know, he certainly would have got a medal in that. I don't know where he would have finished. Uh, but, yeah, I, he could have. He, he could have had a lot more. But, again, that wasn't who he was. He just – I think he was happy to fade off in the sunset, and I think he felt he had groomed uh, enough of a – the next generation that he could kind of step back. And certainly once Duke started getting a lot of praise and his time started coming in as really fast, Daniel said, you know what, I'm, I'm good. You, you, you really don't need me. And I'd just be a distraction. Um, Do you think
0: that is a lot of why maybe a lot of people haven't heard of him or don't talk about him? It was kind of just that personality where he wasn't somebody to be in the spotlight a little bit, because I mean, It is that legacy, I guess, that he did leave for the sport. I mean, looking at sort of the us in in swimming you know in the five olympics up to 1912 didn't top the medal tally once in swimming but uh in the all the ones afterwards 24 olympics it's only been five times you've not topped the uh, swimming uh, (laughs) since 1920 the olympics so there's a legacy there but i mean do you think if he was a bit much more of a a personality kind of no offense to americans this is a compliment don't worry michael that we picture americans as kind of very much like yeah i'm american yeah so like do you think if he was a bit more like that we might be Talking about him a lot more, you know, a hundred odd years later than we actually are.
1: I yeah, a hundred percent. He like I said, he was just shy, humble. He never wanted the spotlight, and the only reason why he took it even for a little bit because he knew he was the face of swimming, and if he didn't do this, swimming was never going to raise rise to the level that you know he and some of his coaches believed we could as a as a country. And one tribute to his. I think how he carried himself was in the 1908, uh, I'm sorry, the 1912 Olympics when he wasn't there and Duke Ahanamogo, um was in his stead to, to um, defend his hundred meter crown. You know, the United States got the wrong information and didn't show up for the race. And it wow. was Cecil Healy of Australia who was one of Daniel's you know, old rivals who Daniels and him went neck and neck and Daniels always eked it out. But, you know, Healy, I think really respected his, his fight and he respected how he was humble and everything like that. And Healy stood up against the Olympic committee and says, we're not, I'm not going to do this race unless Konamoko can be here, unless the Americans can be here. Wow. And uh, he was a, Cecil Healy was a great tribute to Australia and a real hero died in world war one. Sadly, I think in the last week of the war, but um just just a great human being and sportsman uh somebody to be really proud of
0: it's it's fascinating to think just outside of those legacy things that we talked about with with charles and everything that he's sort of done for the sport i mean inducted into the swimming hall of fame later in life lived a pretty fruitful life lived to 88 uh so still around to see spitz win all those medals in 1972 so i i mean is there other bits out there in terms of his legacy? Like, I mean, is there a pool named after him somewhere? Like, is there some sort of like you know uh, honorific meet named after him? And if not, can we get this started, Michael? Like, I feel like uh, can we get right. the, the Charles Daniels pool or something happening?
1: There, there, there should be something named after him, but there, there isn't. Um, not, that, not that I'm aware of, and not that his granddaughters are aware of. Again, he kind of quietly faded into the sunset. Now. He, but, you know, it's funny. Despite his humility, he was always a competitor. And, you know, he he channeled that in hunting. He channeled that in golf. He became the California senior PGA champion two years running, uh, you know, when he was a senior. And he he broke the record for the most rounds of golf played in a day, most holes yeah. of golf played in a day. You know, so he never stopped that. His granddaughter said he was a shrewd card player. And <laughs> he'd show up to some of the local places and just – you know, play for beer money, but he always won, <laughs> <laughs> and I think he liked that. So, uh, you know, can never take the competitor out of him.
0: Did you send a copy of the book to his granddaughters? If so, have they have they read it? And kind of what did what did they think of it?
1: Yeah, so they actually they just got a copy of it. So I showed him an early one of the first versions of it, which wasn't really a book. It was more like their family history. You know, you you plot this out and I thought you know I, I gave it to them I said look y- y- both of you would really enjoy this because it's all about your family history I'm like this is not going to be the book but it, it's kind of the groundwork for for him for the story that I'm going to tell uh so they did read that but they haven't read the book I said I'm not gonna let you read it till it's totally finished so they have it now and I I so I'll, I'll hear from them soon
0: and he's at that- I mean, I can imagine, obviously, you're in that period right now where it's like, ah, oh, the book's out now, like people are starting to read it and sort of finding out what it's what they think of it. But is that the most nerve wracking, hearing what they think about it? Because they're the ones who are going to be basically reading this, you know, with the memories of, of their granddad and, and kind of, you know, really being able to hear those stories and see those stories again, which they know about. They've told you and then kind of put it all onto pages, basically.
1: You know, one, it's actually been a really fun process with them because they knew some things about him, but they didn't know a lot of things about him. Um, You know, they didn't, they knew, like, his dad wasn't a good guy, but they didn't really know what the situation was by any means. Um, So it's been kind of fun sharing nuggets with them and them sharing a little bit with me, you know, what they remember of him, some stories that he told them. Uh, So again, very collaborative and they've been wonderful. So I'm really excited for them to read this and see the light that he's put in because even they knew about some of the stuff he did, obviously that he won these medals, that he was one of the first gold medalists. Um, they'd heard that, you know, he invented the freestyle stroke, but they didn't, they didn't know all the stuff that he went through and and everything like that. So I'm excited for them to see this story and how it's, told now um so you know and, and they're excited to read it so it'd be great
0: well now that it's out there too i mean what what is your biggest hope that people are learning now about charles daniels okay like, you just is it the legacy that he's left for for not only swimming in the u.s but swimming globally is it kind of just the the great underdog story that you said you're a massive fan on the, from what he came from to, to what he achieved i mean kind of what is the one takeaway you hope that people can get by reading the waterman
1: uh, first of all, I, I hope they're entertained. That's my number one thing. I want you to be entertained. <laughs> well, work with me.
0: I'm telling you now, I was entertained. So <laughs> there you go. You got one I, person I, who I, was.
1: I want you to get that underdog fuel when you close the last page of the book that you're ready to conquer whatever obstacles in your way. And I, I want you to walk away and when you close it, go, gosh, that 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 guy you know, secretly made me learn some things. He snuck some things in there. And now I, I, I'm i a little more wiser for the wear and, and I have more respect for... You know, our uh, past Olympic history and for what Charles Daniels did for our country in creating the swimming culture. I think it's, uh, it's his time that he gets his proper ado. And, uh, you know, one of the early supporters of this project was Bob Costas, who uh, mm. you know, was the voice Legend. of the Olympics for decades, right? And even he didn't know the real story of Charles Daniels. And, and he was like, oh, this needs to be told. So um, so he's been wonderful through the whole process and very generous with his time. And uh, he's another person I really appreciated through the whole thing.
0: Well, we definitely appreciate your time here, Michael. And people who want to get the book, it's it's available now, MichaelLoyne.com. You can find all the retailers that it's available at, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Walmart, Apple Books, all of those great places where you can Buy books and uh, pick it up. And uh, can people follow you on social media too, Michael? Or do you have other sort of uh, things that people can stay up to date with? Maybe if you're going on tour with the book, if maybe they're coming to if you come into a town near them, and you can I don't know if you're doing events like that that you want to plug sort of before we let you go.
1: Yeah, the the uh, I, I do have a website, michaelloyne.com dot uh, I am on social media, and I am. I do have a couple places I will be appearing, uh, but I think they are going to be putting a formal book tour probably in July or August here. Um, right. And I, I hope to get out definitely to some of the sites where he lived, grew up, and uh, you know, I think that'll be very meaningful uh, to people. So, uh, and it'll be great to tell a story and, and meet Absolutely. The and we'll yeah. fight
0: for the we'll fight for the uh, Charles Daniels swimming center somewhere. It's got to happen, right? Like, I mean, come on. I feel like
1: <laughs> I love it. That sounds good.
0: Got it. Got to be out there, Michael. Seriously, absolute pleasure to chat with you. Everybody, go and grab a copy of the Waterman right now. It's a fantastic book. But uh, appreciate your time, Michael. Telling us a bit more about uh, Charles and the great story that uh, he obviously has out there. And uh, yeah, it's a great book, and I definitely recommend it to everybody who's listening to the show today. <laughs>
1: Ben, thank, thank you so much, and I, I appreciate uh, getting the word out and your own enthusiasm over the book. I'm 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 thrilled about it. I'm excited for people to read it. I think they're really going to have a have a fun fun time. <laughs>
0: And a massive, massive thanks there to Michael for his time. Such a fascinating story about Charles Daniels, and can't recommend the book enough. The Waterman, as I said, available now, and uh, it's it's a thoroughly entertaining read. Really does paint a great picture, not only on the story of Charles and everything that he overcame to become such a great Olympic champion, but also just the state of swimming. It's really fascinating to learn how fast swimming has come uh, in 120-odd years since this book was set, so... Uh, amazing to think uh, where we are now versus back then and the sport of swimming. So uh, great story. Thanks to Michael for his time and also thanks to Penguin Random House for arranging that chat and for also sending us a copy of the book as well. Uh, Can't thank them enough for organising everything involved with that. Now next week we are back into speaking to Olympians I'm very excited to bring you a chat with two-time Australian Olympic Alpine skier Jono Brower. Now Jono competed in both Turin and Vancouver in alpine skiing, a fascinating story throughout getting uh, through the ranks and basically uh, how he went in both those Olympics and uh, worked with Jono during the Beijing Olympics. He was, of course, part of Channel 7's commentary team and uh, he's a great guy, fun, entertaining chat. You will love every single second of that, so that's coming your way next week. And, of course, if you missed any of our other recent interviews of course our great catch up we had with brie last week about her time in beijing our best of a couple of weeks ago and everything else that came before that best way to find those episodes of course is to search her off the podium on wherever you get your podcasts from spotify stitcher apple podcast google podcast amazon podcast iHeartRadio. we're on all of them search for it hit that subscribe button leave us a review we'd love to hear what you think of the show And, of course, social media as well. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. You can find us on there. Search for Off The Podium. Subscribe. We are that simple to find. Easy. And send us a message. Love to hear what you're thinking of the show as well. So uh, stay up to date with everything going on that way. Big thanks again to Michael. Once again, thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, Shout out to Jason Momoa, as always. My name is Ben. This is Off The Podium. And, as always, remember to go left.